Obsidian Codex, Episode 1, The Monks. Okay, I'm going to start recording voice memos again. As soon as I get a new graduate assistant, they can transcribe it all. If this leads anywhere, that is. Ah, oh, shit. Graduate assistant. Now I can't stop thinking about Chano. His skin against mine, the taste of his lips. God damn it. Scratch that. September 8th, 2016. Field notes. Dr. Robert Kerr, Nelson Kerr Chair in Anthropology, University of Texas. I'm recording from my hotel room in Tepoztlan, Morelos, in Mexico. I arrived two days ago for the funeral of my grandmother, Marta Ochoa de Kerr. Though I was laying the last of my older loved ones to rest in the stony soil of the Mexican plateau, the burial was a small affair. First a meager mass at the San Jose Chapel, then a lonely night-long wake, just a handful of friends, mourners, family members, most of whom left discreetly whenever I nodded off. I was disappointed, but I understood. Abuela was something of a recluse in her final years. As a teen, she'd married Nelson Kerr, an older archaeologist from the U.S., and gone gallivanting across Mexico with him. So she was ostracized by her family, even though she went on to become a reputable cardiologist. The decade she spent back here in her native Tepoztlan after grandfather's death apparently did nothing to seal that rift. <laughs> From what I could tell, the old woman didn't make many attempts to connect with anyone beyond a scattering of cherished friends. Noting their absence with a sigh, I let myself drift into fitful sleep. In my dreams, the doorbell rang. I got up from my desk to answer. Standing on the porch of my home were my grandparents, hand in hand, smiling. Then they stepped aside, revealing my mother and father behind them. <sighs> Covered in lacerations and burns, jagged bone-piercing skin, they each lifted a mangled hand to caress my face. When will you join us? they asked, voices thick with blood. It is so quiet here in the House of Shades, still and gray and numb. We are waiting, all of us. Come soon, soon. I jerked awake in the gloom of the funeral home, heart thundering in my chest. What I saw next almost wrenched a scream from my lips. A hooded figure was sitting cross-legged in front of me. For a moment, the child inside of me was certain Laka Laka had come to take Abuela's soul. Death herself. Dark robes, hood obscuring the features of an emaciated face, bony hands clasped loosely in her lap. But then I blinked and the illusion dissolved. It was just an old man in monastic garb. A monk. Perdone, he said at my awakening shudder. I did not mean to frighten you. Not at all, I replied in Spanish. I'm glad of the company. Did you know my grandmother? He pulled back his hood, revealing the very creased face and roomy eyes of an ethnic Nahua elder. 
His cheeks were sunken, his silver hair thin and patchy. He had the air of someone riddled with cancer or some other terminal disease. Yes, I visited her often in her last days. He attempted a smile, more a grimace or rictus of pain than anything else. Most of his teeth were missing, his gums pale and covered in ulcers. I tried not to think of Abuela suffering under the gaze of such a ghoulish creature. I worked with your grandfather, you see. Shared something with him. I leaned forward, attentive, even though the breath that wheezed from his chest was putrid, to say the least. What? I asked. Something I never should have. Something that must remain hidden. That should be forgotten. Tell me, Dr. Kerr, do you have his journals? The question was like a gut punch. I was flooded with memories I spent a decade trying to erase. I love my grandfather dearly, sought to emulate the scope and relentlessness of his intellectual endeavors. He was nearly a hundred years old at the end, though still remarkably spry, puttering about in the garden with Abuela and keeping up on the latest work by Mesoamericanists. When the strokes came, one after another, I rushed to the hospital to be by his side, gripping a thick-veined hand and searching for the light in his dimming eyes. Secret journals, he rasped as the dark swirled his mind shut at last. Find them. Keep them safe. After his funeral, I asked my grandmother about his papers, but she swore most of them had been turned over to the university, giving me full access to what remained in their home. I found little that he hadn't already published during his long and stellar career, and certainly nothing that needed safekeeping. His death was the first in a series of tragedies that shattered all joy in my life. What I wouldn't have given in the darkest moments of my despair, at the nadir of my existence, to have had his private thoughts echoing in that gentle baritone within my head a calming counterpoint to the chaotic cacophony that fate was screeching into my soul. No, I told the moribund monk, glancing at Abuela's coffin as if her corpse could confirm the truth. There are no secret journals. Ah, he replied, scratching at parchment skin with a yellowed fingernail. But there are, Dr. Kerr. I should know. I recited the codex for him, watched him record every puissant word with feverish glee, clarified his doubts as he later transcribed the reels. Codex? What codex? I demanded. A familiar sense of excitement blossomed in my belly, the promise of discovery, of revelation, of recognition. Coughing attacks, he's the old monk. He wiped bloody spittle from his lips with one sleeve. If you don't have his journals, he rasped, then that means the keeper still do. Father Quevedo, cried a woman's voice. I turned to see a nurse hurrying to the monk's side. The doctors were clear. You can't halt treatment, even for funerals. As she hauled him to his feet, Quevedo scoffed. What about my own? 
You'll have to excuse the prior, the nurse said. He hates the chemotherapy, says it muddles his mind. She started pulling him toward the door, but he turned and extended a knotted finger toward me. When they arrive, burn them. Don't read a single page. Don't become a weapon. Then the dying old man slipped into the deep night and disappeared with his guide, leaving me with a skull full of buzzing questions that kept sleep at bay. September 8th, 2016. Field Notes, Part 2. Somehow I managed to sleep a couple of hours before the procession this morning. Abuela's eternal bed was lifted into the air. Our small group made its way to the cemetery, a trio of altar boys singing in Paradisum in Latin. They set the coffin between the hole and the mound of freshly spaded dirt, and my universe shrank down to include just that black coffin, that gaping maw in the earth, in my hands, gripping a white rose. May her soul and the souls of all the faithful departed, through the mercy of God, rest in peace the parish priest finally murmured in Spanish, concluding the service. The coffin was lowered into darkness. I tossed in my rose. Others did the same. Then shovelfuls of rocky black dirt sealed Marta Ochoa de Quer away from us forever. I accepted with a perfunctory and bereft smile the final condolences of those in attendance eager for them all to leave just like they did last night there were just two days before my flight and, and I longed to explore what I could of the town the fabled birthplace of divine Quetzalcoatl's human incarnation Seacatl Topitzin emperor the Toltecs. As much as I had loved the old woman, my heart had been wrung dry of grief for years, and I had learned it best to keep my mind busy with research and discovery, the most effective weapons for staving off despair. And perhaps I might find some clues in Tepotzlan, some hint about the codex that Quevedo swears he shared with Grandfather, the mysterious text that he would see burned. I picked my way through the tombstones, crypts, and mausoleums that gleamed ghastly white in the morning sun, like the partially disinterred bones of some antediluvian beast, but gilded with wilting marigolds, reeking of rotting sweetness, ants swarming over abandoned ofrendas of food and drink. Oh, let me pour myself a goddamn drink. Out of the corner of my eye, I thought I saw the swirl of black robes, but when I turned for a better look, the cemetery was empty. A bus ride brought me to the broad square of the Socalo, 
where I wandered through the gorgeous colonial arches of the former convent of Our Lady of the Nativity and explored the four stone chapels standing at each corner of the parish courtyard. Whenever possible, I struck up conversations with older townspeople who might remember Nelson Kerr and the work he once did here. Some of them hail from nearby Santa Catarina and speak Morelos Nautl, which they call Mexicano. It's remarkably similar to the classical language of the Mexica, the source of my own academic reputation, so we're able to communicate. Many are surprised that I know their native tongue, given my sandy skin and European features. One tough crone is even annoyed by my questions. The old words are not yours, not our speech, not the painted books of our ancestors. Go back to where you belong. Just one problem. I don't belong anywhere, do I? Nelson Kerr's grandfather married a Criolla when he came to Texas in the 1800s, so Scott and Spaniard there. And Abuela's mestizo family is a blend of Nahua and Spanish. My dad, Gregorio Kerr Ochoa, contained that diverse heritage. My mother, Hilda Frank Teixis, was the daughter of of a German immigrant to Mexico and his mestiza wife, whose own grandfather was a, was a Tlaxcalteca Nahua. But I was born in central Texas, like three generations of Kerr men before me. What am I then? I usually tell folks Mexican-American, but that's pretty goddamn imprecise. I can point to some indigenous roots, but I'm not culturally indigenous, was it? raised in such a community. I grew up speaking English and Spanish, part of an intellectual family ensconced in a posh neighborhood in Austin. Learned Nahuatl for academic, not social reasons. And I'm a güero, light-complexioned, hazel eyes, brown hair. And as a full professor from a middle-class family in the U.S., I enjoy a host of privileges that set me apart from nearly everyone in this city. So I nodded the indignant old woman. She's not wrong. I too often have doubts about my right to study, translate, and share the literature of pre-invasion Nawas. Perhaps that work is best left to present-day Nawa communities. But if I'm honest... It's all I have, all that anchors me to life. My family is dead or distant. The ivory tower of academe is lonely, looming above community with objective coldness. And these Nawa towns are hermetic, wary, understandably so. They would keep their traditions away from the prying eyes of a thieving world. But then, humanity would never learn to appreciate the profound wisdom collected in these forgotten corners of Mexico. We are collectively poorer without those insights. Translated into supple English, preserved for posterity, for the betterment of our species... 
That's what I tell myself anyway. To salve my conscience. A chance to document more of these wonders came today. In the morning, a procession set out from the town toward the nearby hill of Teposteco. That's where the Triple Alliance, the so-called Aztec Empire, erected a temple sometime in the late 15th century common era in honor of Tepostecatl, god of drink and wind and fertility, beloved son of Quetzalcoatl. Once we arrived at the site, locals put on a mystery play in Nautl mostly. It showed how the human ruler of the town at the time of the Spanish invasion, an avatar of Tepostecatl himself, had overcome monstrous and <laughs> monomythic obstacles to lead his people to Catholicism. At the end of the ceremony, the man playing Tepostecatl stood atop the pyramid and loudly renounced the old gods, embracing Christ and urging his people to do the same. Christianity, he insisted, was perfectly compatible with their mores and traditions. I was at once appalled and intrigued by this syncretic ceremony. I relished the traditional music and the blend of Morelos Nahuatl with the classical dialect of my studies. I have captured the entire performance in a separate video. Note to graduate assistant, if I haven't forwarded it to you for transcription and translation, prompt me. I've got a lot of shit going on and tend to forget about these side projects. As I was recording, I felt eyes upon me. Swiveling my head, I saw him. Another monk, standing near a tall Seba, watching me. This time, he didn't disappear, so I drifted away from the crowd in his direction. As I got closer, I saw that, embroidered upon the breast of his black robe, was an insignia in red and yellow, a glyph of the sun. At its center was a black dot with a single horizontal bar below it. The Maya number six. Sun six. The sixth sun. The one that the ancients prophesied would rise after the destruction of our own world. The fifth created by the gods in their eternal attempt to strike a balance between chaos and order. I stopped about a yard from the monk. Why are you following me? I asked him in Spanish. Do I know you? Nimitzita, he whispered in Nahuatl, smiling. I see you. I didn't quite understand the words. I still don't. Shaking my head, I reached out to grab the front of his robes. What the hell do you want? He hissed, knocking my hand away. Then, with a wink, he turned and disappeared into the crowd. Hours later, his words still echo in my ears. I want you to destroy the world. Sure, brother. Sometimes I want to see it all burned down, too, but... I can hardly stand up to editors at journals and university presses. Ya me lo voy a poder con el mundo entero. If you're looking for someone bold and powerful, <laughs> you're going to be sorely disappointed.
hell? I'm coming. Ya voy. Aguántame un. left a yellow piece of amate paper. There were words smeared on it and some brown substance. Shit, I think it's blood. Two words. In Nahuatl. <laughs> Just cut goosebumps. Saniman, it reads. Soon. Soon. <laughs>